Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I'm in Hollywood, and my last name is Levine. This is part two of my two-part interview with Shelley Herman. She wrote a great book called My Peacock Tale, T-A-L-E, Secrets of an NBC Page. It's a tell-all, and for anybody who wondered, well, what's it like when you break in and you get to mingle with all of the stars and, uh, well... That's the book, and she's the one to talk to. This week, we talk more about game shows, because she was also a game show executive. And like I said, uh, she hobnobbed with some celebrities, a lot of celebrities. She has a number of great stories in the book. But we talk about uh, a couple of sleazeballs this week, Bill Cosby, big surprise there, and McLean Stevenson. Also, (laughs) she's got a very interesting resume. For a year on ESPN, she co-hosted monster truck rallies. We'll talk about that. And she's also hosted eight infomercials. So we'll talk about the world of infomercials. A lot going on this week. Shelley Herman, my guest on Hollywood and Levine. What does it take to be a good contestant? It seems like they like a, a certain type where you have to sort of be bubbly and brimming with personality and willing to jump up and down if you win a trash compactor. Well, I think you can also remember back in the day when there was the show Queen for a Day. Yep. And some of the contestant casting, which I I really... I I really cringe at that word of casting a contestant, but I guess that's what they do. Um, They usually have like a little sob story now that goes along with why they're a contestant. It's not just enough that you want to have a fabulous experience and, and try to win fabulous cash and prizes. But it seems that if you've got a good backstory, if, if you're pregnant, if you're in the military, if uh, you know, something like that, that's a little more compelling because like a good script, when when I was was I was reading scripts at NBC, the first thing they said is make sure that the character is likable and everyone can identify with it. So that's what they do now for casting game shows. And to their credit, they're 
very, being very diverse about it too now, which in the past, it wasn't so, so much that way. So you're getting different ages, uh, diff different ethnicities that are on there. People that are disabled are doing game shows now. So it really, it's a wide open field. The only game show that I watch on a regular basis is Jeopardy. And they have a wide range of, of contestants. And they will have contestants who essentially, it's almost like reality shows, are, are, are villains. You know, they're, <laughs> they're the contestants that you just hate. And you can see on the internet, if one of these wins, then there's a flurry of tweets from people who are outraged that, that this person beat the sweet librarian. Uh, and to me, that just sort of makes it a, a little more interesting. And, and I must admit, when I watch game shows, especially if it's a game show with three competing contestants, I generally will find myself rooting for one. And I imagine that's something, too, that you want the audience to somehow identify with or like one of the one of the three contestants. Well, and that's what makes it such a horse race at the end for Final Jeopardy, because when you do have these people who are villains who might have a little bit too much bravura and suddenly they wipe themselves out and, and the sweet little librarian winds up winning. So that's always fun too. And at the same token where you get somebody like a James Holzhauser, Holzhauer, mm -hmm. like a, one of the ultimate villains. I mean, I have friends of mine in Vegas um, in August who are doing a charity fundraiser that he's sponsoring. And um, so even though he might have It's that a persona. Yeah, yeah, it's it's totally a, a persona. Yeah. Whereas some other people, like there's a guy that's the Beast, who's a heavyset British guy. Right. Yeah. And, um I'm not saying That's the chase here and I think the show was called The Beast in England. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then they and then they've tried to americanize it a little bit with some of the the champions from Jeopardy. But I'm I'm not saying that Mark um is really a villain, but you can draw your own conclusions. Mhm. Mm yeah. Speaking of villains, <laughs> doubling back to uh, your page days, uh, you spent a lot of time on The Tonight Show. They warned you about Bill Cosby way back in the 70s, didn't they? Yeah, but I, again, being like little feminist girl, my first reaction to the fact that they didn't allow women pages to work on The Tonight Show when Bill Cosby was hosting is I thought it was like, how come the men just get to do it, not the girls? And I, you know, I went into the Eba Hawkins, who was the head of the page staff at the time and protested. And she said, well, you know, it's a policy of the production company. That's what Mr. Cosby has asked for. And we have to provide that. Well, soon it became a problem with the actual Tonight Show staff that whenever he would arrive, they would send somebody down to make sure that he had everything in his dressing room he needed and here's the script and any last minute changes. And the women on the Tonight Show staff started complaining. And it was mostly aside from his arrogance uh, that he was sitting around with his private parts showing while he was there. 
And then they were sending the guys down and then the guys started protesting also. So it, and, and he would do things like walk through the hallway and rub up against one of the girl pages. She told me he did that. So yeah, he was creepy back in the mid seventies. Yeah. I, I had a, a friend who was, um, she, she was a field reporter at NBC at the local channel four and the, Channel 4 news studios were in that whole complex. And, um, yeah, she tells horror stories. She told me a horror story about Bill Cosby. This was like back in 1974, 75. And, you know, and it's like that, for me, it was like, no, <laughs> America's dad? Yeah. No. So um, I want to get into McLean Stevenson. Well, I'm glad you do. Because <laughs> <laughs> you have a very interesting McLean Stevenson story. All of your stories, it, it's, you know, you were there at a, at a fabulous time. There's like lots and lots of celebrities that you, you touch upon, uh, Freddie Prince, Gilda Radner's. There's lots of people, and I don't want to go through each one because I want people to buy the book and <laughs> and see for themselves. But I do want to talk as <laughs> as uh, a Mash alumni. <laughs> uh, I I do want to talk about uh, your experience with McLean Stevenson. Well, another thing we have in common. Um, <laughs> Late one night, <laughs> um, I was sitting with a friend at Sambo's Restaurant, which was at the uh, intersection of the 101 Freeway and Las Virginis Road in Calabasas. Yes, right. There used to be, and actually, I think there still is one in Santa Barbara, but there was a coffee shop chain named Sambo's for many years. With with the had the mosaic of the of the little black Sambo story that was that was at the coffee shop too. Right. Yeah. So, um, and it was a 24 hour diner. So I was there with a friend who was trying to work on a script for, at, for his class at Pepperdine. And we used to have a running joke because it was, you know, such a dive that whenever somebody would come through the door, we'd say like, oh, there's Elizabeth Taylor. or Oh, there's Jack Nicholson taking out takeout food. And it was just like a running joke because it was such a horrible place. And then my friend Julian looks up and goes, there's McLean Stevenson. And I'm like, <laughs> I goes, no, no, it's really McLean Stevenson. And it sort of made sense because the exteriors of MASH were shot just down the road off of Las Virginis Road. So, okay, Correct. it made sense. He was in the neighborhood. But he was being accompanied by two sheriff's deputies uh, because it was very obvious that McLean had been overserved at a function that he had just left. And they sat him down at the counter and said, sit here, drink some coffee, sober up, but don't get back on the road again. So Julian and I are sitting at the table and I just got a mood ring. And uh, I was trying to explain to him what the mood ring was. <clears throat> and if you, you know, have a certain color, it means you're friendly or affectionate or whatever. But McLean says, what, what are you two talking about? And I said, well, gee, Mr. Stevenson, it's a mood ring. And if you put it on, it tells you your mood. And so he put it on after several cups of coffee and it immediately went to horny. That was the color, <laughs> horny. 
So he looked at me and he said, I'm in love. Come back to my apartment with me. And I said, oh, Mr. Stevenson, I can't possibly do that. I'm a good girl. We'd have to be married first. So he said, okay, let's get married. So Julie LaViolette, who was the waitress, and I went into the ladies' room. And I fashioned a bouquet out of toilet paper. And I made like a little dress out of toilet paper. And it was it was quite lovely. And we got the head cook to marry us. Because if you're the, you know. The, the head cook, I guess yeah. that qualifies you. Yeah. In the, the state of California. Ship, captain yeah. of the ship marries people. It seemed perfectly natural. Mm-hmm. So um, and we had two bikers stand up to make a hoopah. So. Because uh, okay, it had to be a Jewish wedding. It had to be. And McLean stepped on the styrofoam cup at the end of it and then gave me like one of the worst kisses I've ever had in my life. <laughs> it, it it smelled like like booze and cigarettes and desperation. It was just horrible. <laughs> and um, so we're and by now it's like two in the morning. And uh, so he's just like, so, you know, how about it? Come back to my apartment. I'm going, oh, my God, it's too late. And then he leans over and very discreetly whispers you know i'm uh hosting the tonight show tomorrow night would you like to come and the few people that were in sambo said yeah we'd love to come were were you at a page at the time no this was before i was a page oh okay so um gonna say because you're you can say yeah i know i'm working it tomorrow (laughs) (laughs) well there's five of us that piled into the car and went to see him and of course nothing ever happened but flash forward Six months later, I'm a page at NBC and he's doing a sitcom called The McLean Stevenson Show. And I'm I wore my he was in that. <laughs> yeah, isn't that isn't that a That's coincidence? That's what a coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the Lou Gehrig's disease. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it was a horrible show, but I was sitting in the bleachers observing the show trying to figure out, okay, this is how things are done. And maybe I'll write a spec script. And then when the show's picked up for a second season, maybe I can become a staff writer. And I'm already having my Emmy speech thanking McLean in my mind on how all this works. Well, I get called up to McLean's office one day as a page, my duties as a page. And um, I told him not to worry that I'd gotten a divorce from Taco Bell. So everything was okay. (laughs) And, uh, we chatted a bit and then he pressed a little button that was underneath the desk and the door slammed shut. The Matt Lauer button. He had one of those. Had one of those. And um, a a more rational woman probably would have been indignant and demanded the door be opened immediately and stormed out of there. But I just started laughing. And because this was happening to me. I'm like five foot nothing. I'm kind of a tomboy. And and he's pursuing me after I'd made it very clear I wasn't going to go to his apartment with him. And uh, I started laughing. I'm saying, oh, my God, this is like what happens to Doris Day. And you were on the Doris Day show and and you're being a masher and you were on MASH. And I'm laughing, laughing, laughing. And they pushed me down on the couch and it got kind of scary. And I found a way out of it to hopefully preserve my dignity as well as his. Because if I were to complain to HR at that time, who were they going to believe? Little Page Girl or, you know, NBC's shining star, McLean Stevenson. Right. So um, I left and went down to the Page Lounge because I had to go work The Tonight Show. And I was upset. And uh, my friend Pete uh, 
was there. He was the supervisor. And I told him what happened. And he said, oh, he does that to all the girls. He followed Sandy Peterson down to the page lounge once. Oh, don't give it a second thought. Well, suddenly I'm pissed off at Sandy Peterson because I'm like jealous of her for a guy that was trying to assault me. It was just a very weird thing. And I kind of compartmentalized it for a long time. How old were you at the time? Probably 20. I was 20. I wasn't even 21 yet. Okay. So it was a lot of confusing feelings of sure. trying, to, trying to be a grown up in that kind of an environment. And um, I was very, I, I kept asking, what did I do wrong? And I, you know, I was doing what I supposed to be doing as a page. I was learning the job. I was trying to make contacts with people. I, I really did want to be a writer. I've become a writer, but I thought this was the way to do it, to hang out at the sets, observe the people. But he always had another agenda. It was never going to be different for me. Whereas it might've been for, if it was a guy trying to do the same thing I was trying to do. Sure. So you moved on from being at NBC page and there are a couple of things in your background that I want to talk about because they seem very interesting. You co-hosted a monster truck rally. Battle of the Monster Trucks and Mudbog Spectacular for ESPN. Thank you very much. <laughs> How did you get that gig? Uh, in the olden days, when uh, they used to have ads in the back of Variety, there was a job saying looking for a female motorsports announcer. And I had an attraction to IndyCar racing because of Paul Newman. <clears throat> and I was convinced that if I ever met Paul Newman and we could chat up IndyCar things together, we'd be best friends. And maybe he'd marry me. Okay, maybe there was that part of it too. Uh, so when I went for the job, they said, do, what do you know about monster trucks? What do you know about mud bogs? What do you know about you know these spectacular shows? I said nothing, but I showed up in a really tight red jumpsuit and my hair was big. And I got the job and traveled for a year and a half every other weekend all around the country. Um, I worked the Houston Astrodome. Uh, I worked a stadium. There were there were a 98,000 people that were there. And my co-host, Brett Kepner and I uh, would would do live play by play on the show. To his credit, he knew he knows he still knows this stuff inside and out. I was trying to do color commentary to it too to give it the more human touch um but the guys that were doing this um really were spending like every last dime trying to make something of themselves but i learned i learned the finesse of a demolition derby i learned the secrets of people who blow themselves up in boxes uh people jumping motorcycles it was a whole different subculture and i loved it wow <laughs> <laughs> wow. You also hosted eight infomercials. You got to be a pretty damn good salesman to host a, a, an infomercial. Is that something that you just instinctively knew how to do? Or did you have to learn how to do that? Because there's an art to salesmanship. And especially if you're going to host eight infomercials tells me that the first seven you did a really good job <laughs> um 
the infomercials were very, very popular back then. So I was able to observe how a lot of people did them. And they weren't scripted necessarily, but they were bullet points. So I knew that in the first segment, these were the three bullet points I needed to hit. And I did it in a way where it it was a very soft sell. And um, there was a, a guy, Arnold Morris, that I worked with. And he he actually, like, was the first. I, he taught me how, you know, like when you get a Jinsu knife and you cut things a certain way. But there's there's a secret about and it cuts. You can even cut metal with it and then cut a tomato. I learned the finesse of all those kinds of things. Um, but he, he used to be like a uh, on on the boardwalk in Atlantic City. He taught Ed McMahon how to do that kind of stuff before Ed McMahon was even famous. Uh, there there is a an art to it. There is a logic to it because much like a game show, you want to capture someone's attention and have some kind of a payoff for it at the end. Um, I didn't do what they would call the call to action, which is um, I would go, well, that that vacuum looks really, really great. And here's how to order. And then somebody else would do the hard sell. But I just tried to keep it entertaining. What were some of the products that you hawked? Uh, there was a product and I still have one. It was called a sweeper and it was a rubber headed. Uh, I, I think they originally used it for tennis courts. It was a rubber headed uh uh, sweep uh, broom but one side was a squeegee and one side had the little bristles on it and that's a great product that's one that doesn't doesn't do it um, a lot of different types of choppers I sold um, a makeup product uh, not a pig what do you product. mean oh you mean like vegematics yeah but not the one there's one that's like um that you can really they you, you don't want to use one of slices these slices and busters. dices all in one easy motion. You don't want the slice and dice one because that's the knuckle buster. That's what we call that one, the knuckle buster. Um, but this was one that um, you could put it in a in, in kind of a, a plastic container and and twirl the top around, and it could make salsa. It could make um, a scrambled eggs for you, whatever you needed to do, and you just add all the ingredients. Uh, another one that I just loved was this product that was called Pizza Plus. And it looked kind of like a waffle iron, but it had little indents in it that you could put pie filling in and then put tomato sauce and pepperoni and cheese. And then you close it. And in like two minutes, you had like little pizza pies that you could serve individually. The problem was if you didn't eat it, like within five minutes, they were hockey pucks. <laughs> and then we, the, the person who, or the, the company I worked for, got a whole bunch of them sent over, I think from Australia is where they were from. And they didn't have that United States URL listing saying that okay. they would blow up on your kitchen counter. So right. we had to pull it from selling it. So you worked for a company and you were like one of the spokespeople that they would use or did you, or they, they, you know, eight individual like freelance assignments that you just picked up? Most of them were with a guy named A.J. Kubani, who um, you've seen the, his uh, bulb head is his company now. Um, he sells most of the stuff that you see at your local drugstores on the shelf where you spend nineteen ninety five for it and go, well, maybe it works. And you buy it. Um, A.J. is a great guy, very smart marketing man. And I learned a lot from him. Uh, but there's a couple other companies I worked for that were, you know, people just trying to cash in on the infomercial craze. 
Um, but the first guy I started with, remember the guy that used to wear almost like the Bill Cosby sweaters, the colorful sweaters. Um, and you would, there was a product that you'd, you'd put it on your car and you'd wipe the car. And all of a sudden it was like magic. The car, the coat of the car was restored to its normal brilliance. Um, Michael, Michael Levine, I think his name was, he passed away young, but he was really, really smart with all that kind of stuff. He was a great marketing guy. Yeah. When you go to a state fair, I always love, there is usually one hall that is just filled with products, you know, with <laughs> walks and vacuum cleaners and things and all of these guys that are selling them. And I always find that fascinating to listen to the, the various sales pitches and things. When you would do an infomercial, you do a half hour infomercial, would you kind of do it in a half an hour or would it take three days? And you're doing it over and over and over again. Over and over and over again. Not three days, but usually like a long 16 or 18 hour day. Ooh. Uh, and uh, there was a really good product that I worked with. It was called Zap, Z-A-P. And the man who created that product used to, uh, his company cleaned restrooms in bus stops, public <laughs> schools. <laughs> and and uh, he he developed this product called Zap that had a minty fragrance to it, and it was an enzyme. But you had to leave it on the tile surface for like at least two or three minutes to let the enzymes work. But man, it worked really really well. So we had like for the demos, we had to have like fifty of these cruddy surfaces lined up, so that with each take. We we could do it again and again and again, but it was a really, really good product. I ha I have to state that. And with him, he was really smart because we did like 15 minute infomercials and we'd repeat this. We'd repeat it in a half hour cycle so that if somebody missed the beginning of it, oh, here it comes again and another 15 minutes. Yeah, you and I have that in common, I guess, because when I was 14, I used to sell Amway products door to door. Door to door? Door to door, yeah. Aren't you supposed to have like Amway parties and invite people to you? No, no, I went door to door. And how did you do Se it? Selling their, uh, what do we have? There was like a laundry detergent that we had, and there was uh, a shoe shine spray. Say that four times, <laughs> say it twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I made like $40 the entire summer. And how much did you put out to get the products to sell? Well, that's that's the thing. You had to like buy the samples. You had to like buy the case and everything. And I got a letter from Amway saying I owed them $18.42 for the kit and, and the pamphlets and all that other stuff. And I wrote back and I said, I'm 14. <laughs> <laughs> but how entrepreneurial of you to do that at 14? Well, I couldn't get a job doing anything else. So well, yeah. you were a kid. You weren't I supposed was a kid. to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was a kid. You know, and, you know, again, it's one of those pyramid schemes. You know, you go and they show you how you make all these mo this money and then you recruit people. 
and you get part of what they make. And, you know, they show people, you know, hi, I'm in the Bahamas (laughs) (laughs) because I sold Amway products. Yeah. Now, because a lot of people might think that you were born with a, a, a silver spoon in your mouth and a typewriter. But what other odd, odd jobs did you have before you got to do what you love? I was a I, I sold records at at Wallach's Music City. Uh, I did that. Um, in terms of odd jobs. Or just survival jobs. Were you ever a waiter or a cook or a No, I was never a waiter or, or a cook. <laughs> I I was one step below working the grease trap at McDonald's. I <laughs> taught broadcasting. Had <laughs> at, at a broadcasting mill. And I think I would have made more if I clean the grease trap at McDonald's. And ironically, you still came home smelling like French fries from your teaching job. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Although when I was in the army for like a week, they didn't know what to do with us. So we all got assigned different tasks and uh, I worked on a garbage truck. Oh no. Yeah. I did a garbage truck for a week. And where were you? Where were you stationed? Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Okay, and if 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 other people haven't said this, thank you for your service. Oh, you're welcome. It didn't yeah. get invaded, so you did your job well. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so I was a garbage man for for a week. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and and did you vow right then and there that you were going to go to school and learn to do something else, or how did you get out of the army and get into your next career? Well, I thought seriously of of being a garbage man. It seemed like a very good job at the time. (laughs) (laughs) At that time. (laughs) At that time. So I I thought, yeah, this might be a a really good career. And then I, you know, in, in my quest to get good paying jobs as a garbage man to make ends meet, I started writing scripts and the the scripts kind of took over and, and I was never able to fulfill my dream of being a garbage man. And what made because you Because of Nash. Yeah. As as a as a little boy growing up in the San Fernando Valley, watching a lot of people in show business around you, what made you think that you could get in the door and make a living doing that? I had no idea other than the fact, and I've mentioned this before too on the podcast, that when you go to school and you have to take all of these required subjects, math and history and science and all this stuff that you hate, and you got to do one elective, I thought, you know, when I get out in the real world, I can do an elective. <laughs> so that was my that was my motivation. What about you? What got you into the world of show business? I, I, you you talk about math. I couldn't do math. So that, and I love, I love science, but I knew I couldn't take that route once I got to college because I couldn't do math very well. And I went to Cal State Northridge. I graduated there. Um, I just always thought it was a natural extension of who I was. And 
when I was in high school, I got to go to a taping of the midnight special at the, which was being done at NBC. And, um, I got to see Jim Croce. That was one of the, mm. one of the acts that I saw. And, uh, I saw these people standing around in these horrible polyester uniforms and they got to listen to rock and roll music and they got paid to be there to listen to rock and roll music. And the only other job I'd had at that point was being an usher at the Valley Music Theater in Woodland Hills. I was an usher at the Valley Music Theater. We have so much in common. (laughs) Well, I got I got the VIP row. No, and, I didn't. Uh, and I remember very clearly that Woody Allen was, and and ironically, Jim Croce was on the bill. Uh, Woody Allen was performing stand up, and I got to escort Groucho Marx and Jack Benny to their VIP seats to see Woody Allen. Wow! So that was my only job experience. So when I saw these people ushering the show at Midnight Special. I thought I could apply for that job because I at least had one thing on my resume that made it look like I was a professional. And then I learned later how hard it was to get that job and how fortunate I was. Wow. Well, your book is called My Peacock Tale, Secrets of an NBC Page. It's really a fun book. Uh, Again, a lot of good dish. You know, a lot of names are mentioned, but... You know, for people who aren't in the industry, it's a chance to vicariously live through the industry and what it was like to be in the halls of NBC during a really golden era. And uh, it's 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 a fun book. What what last question? What motivated you to write the book? There's a core group of us who have been best friends since we started our page experience over 45 years ago. And we all know each other's stories. We've heard them a million times. Our spouses have heard it. Our children, grandchildren have heard all these stories. But when the pandemic hit and we discovered Zoom, then we could start connecting with some of our friends who had moved out of California. And we would all get on the screen together and all start exchanging stories. And in in the case of two of the women, one of them had this very lovely, pristine story about Freddie Prinze. And the other one had a darker story about Freddie. And she was with him the night he died. And these two girls had never talked to each other about that. And then we started connecting a few more dots and realized, hey, there's there's something going on here that needs to be recorded and needs to be saved. These stories are are really too precious about what, what Brandon Tartikoff called at NBC the last great ride. It was the last really, really fun time to be in showbiz at NBC. And, you know, we, we saw Johnny Carson in the hallways. We interacted with, you know, so many different celebrities, John Wayne, Bob Hope, Jimmy Stewart. It just doesn't happen like that anymore. So, I figured this was needed to be chronicled. And in, in my little pitch packet, I say it's kind of like sex in the city meets mad men. And mm-hmm. it was a lot of fun. That's great. Shelly, thank you so much. Good luck. See you on the bestseller list. Oh, I'll, I'll be there next to you. All right. And if you have a, still a bottle of zap or something, send it over. <laughs> Okay, there is my two-part interview with Shelley Herman once again. 
The title of her book is My Peacock Tale, T-A-L-E, Secrets of an NBC Page. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolfert, Bruce and Jason Miller. My email address, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Follow me on Instagram, and you can see my various cartoons. Come back next week. Another fun episode of Hollywood and Levine.